Greetings and welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick with your hosts Ray and Mark. In this episode, your intrepid hosts explore the mysterious disappearance of famed aviatrix Amelia Earhart. Face it, if you're trying to fly around the world in an antique aircraft, you can't leave behind your safety backup equipment to save weight. Unless you've got a good Google Maps app and good phone signal, you're liable to end up as the hide-and-go-seek champion of 1937. Greetings, Cathartic Yardstick fans. Uh, This is normally the part in the show where you're chuckling over Uncle Mark's uh, witty opening uh, and, and probable dad joke. But we just, hey. wanted to in- <laughs> we just wanted to interrupt because we had a very odd thing happen in the process of making this podcast. And we're going to put it at the end. So uh, we didn't want you to, to forget about it. So we just thought we'd put this up front. So uh, listen to the podcast. Enjoy. Uh, left the joke. And uh, we'll pick it up at the end. Oh... Uh, well, well, welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast. Uh, coming to you from New York and Virginia, I'm Ray. And I'm Mark. And, and this is the podcast. It is. Or, or so we think. I think so. Well, you know, one thing that's been interesting after doing this for almost a year now is, is just how much the myth-making process, you know, we, we deal with a lot of issues like contemporary mythology, urban folklore, pop culture, conspiracy theories. We deal with a lot of issues apart from those, <laughs> but we also, among, <laughs> right. the deals, among the issues we deal with are those. Right. On the podcast, we're mostly dealing with those issues. There you go. And, uh, and we're not in the corner broken down crying. No. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's interesting is that you know, the whole myth-making process still continues. And, you know, and whether it's evil spirits or demons or or aliens, the myths continue within a cultural context and and they reflect our our hopes and fears. And uh, one thing that's, that's also been interesting is for some things like the Philadelphia experiment and past lives, I've been surprised that there's so little that all the mythology uh, and folklore is based on. It's like maybe one or two incidents or, or something. Um, where, where stuff like ghosts, there's a lot of, lot of stuff out there uh, that, that goes across time, across cultures. So you know, it makes me think that the things that are more universal, there may be more to it than the stuff that's more specific and doesn't have as much of a base to it. Yeah, it's interesting, almost like there's an internal human need for it. And then as soon as you have one story or one report that gives somebody something to circulate around, it just explodes. Yeah. Kind of like the Philadelphia experiment. It seems lately just about everything just degrades to the point where it becomes a conspiracy theory. And uh, it seems as if a lot of our fears are that there's one small group of people that knows everything that's controlling everything, which... It is not necessarily a contemporary idea. I mean, that goes back, I think, for for hundreds of years. You know, secret societies, uh, people have always been a little fearful of those sorts of things. I think typically those people believe there's not free will after death. Do you think so, right? Nine nine out of ten of them probably believe that. (laughs) (laughs) But they can't tell us because it's a secret. It's a secret. It is. I could be, and you would not know it, a, a member of some secret society that does not believe in free will after death, that in fact knows that there's no free will after death. Presumes but I can't tell that. you. I can't That's tell right. you. 
It's otherwise it wouldn't be a secret society. That's right. There'd be no point in keeping the secret. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's the secrets out? Oh, oh my gosh. Speaking of secrets, yes. What are we talking about tonight? We are talking about the mystery of Amelia Earhart. You know, I can remember uh, when I was younger, my mother talking about Amelia Earhart, and I don't think the interest in the mystery has died down at all since my mother was a little girl. Did she tell you any firsthand stories about living through it? She seemed to favor the Amelia was captured by the Japanese theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, she seemed to gravitate towards that as an explanation. I, I think especially since she just disappeared without a trace, pretty much, as far as I can tell, that, that was the case. And how did you first find out about Amelia? Was it through your parents? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, interesting for me, I I mentioned it in previous podcasts, but I had the odd habit in a study hall in in high school to occasionally take down volumes of the encyclopedia and just open to a random page and learn a random fact. And I I would just get immense uh, entertainment out of doing that. But even younger, back when I was in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, I'd go to the school library and just pick out a random book to check out. And it still fascinates me to this day how many great, great books I just tripped across. I never would have chosen them intentionally. Uh, so I discovered them by random. And uh, one book was on Amelia Earhart and her fascinating story and her lasting mystery. And so I've kind of been an Amelia Earhart bug ever since because I think she's a very interesting icon. Hmm. Well, uh, tell us the story, Uncle Mark. All right. Basically, in essence, Amelia Earhart was an American aviation pioneer. She set a number of aviation records and was at the forefront of leading the advancement of women in the fields of engineering and aviation. She was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, the first person to ever fly solo from Hawaii to the U.S. mainland. In the summer of 1937, she set out on a mission to circumnavigate the globe. Uh, She almost made it, and she was inside 7,000 miles from completing her trip, but she disappeared without a trace somewhere over the Pacific in July of 1937. Uh, No trace of Amelia or her plane was ever officially found. Her disappearance remains one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the 20th century. So just in terms of Amelia's background, Amelia Mary Earhart was born in Atchison, Kansas on July 21st, 1897. Her father was a railroad lawyer and her mother came from an affluent family. It didn't take long for her to start defying traditional gender roles as a child. She played basketball, took an auto repair course, and she started to display the adventurous and independent personality for which she'd later be famous. After her grandparents died, her family struggled not only financially, but also with her father's alcoholism. Uh, The Earharts moved often. She graduated from high school in Chicago in 1916. When her mother received her inheritance, Amelia attended junior college, but when World War I broke out, it was during a trip to visit her sister in Canada that she left school in 1918 in order to serve as a nurse's aide for the Red Cross in Toronto. While in Toronto, she began to spend time watching the Royal Flying Corps pilots train at a local airfield. After the war, she returned to the United States and was enrolled in Columbia University, majoring in pre-med. Her parents by then were in California, and they insisted she return home to live with them. 
So Amelia left school in 1920 to head to California. While there, in December of 1920, Amelia took her first airplane ride with World War I pilot Frank Hawks, and she was instantly hooked on flying. In January 1921, she started flying lessons, and to help pay for them, she worked as a filing clerk at the Los Angeles Telephone Company. Later in 1921, she purchased her first airplane, a secondhand Kinner Airster. Uh, she nicknamed the yellow airplane the Canary. She passed her flight test in December 1921 and was licensed as a pilot. And within two days, she participated in her first flight exhibition at the Sierra Aerodrome in Pasadena, California. In the mid-1920s, Earhart moved to Massachusetts, where she became a social worker at the Denison House, a settlement home for immigrants in Boston. But she continued to pursue her interest in aviation. In 1928, there were a group of promoters who sought to have a woman fly across the Atlantic Ocean. And in April 1928, Earhart was selected for the flight. Some speculated that she was chosen in part based on her resemblance to Charles Lindbergh, uh, who had become the first man to fly nonstop solo across the Atlantic the previous year. On June 17, 1928, Earhart departed an airfield in Newfoundland, Canada, as a passenger aboard a seaplane piloted by two men. So she was essentially cargo, and that's exactly how she described <laughs> herself. But when she landed in Wales on June 18, 1928, she became an international celebrity. So she was famous cargo. Uh, she wrote a book about the flight called 20 Hours and 40 Minutes, came out in 1928. She undertook a lecture tour across the United States. And much of the publicity was handled by publisher George Palmer Putnam, who had helped organize the historic flight. Now, she'd later marry Putnam in 1931, but she'd continue her career under her maiden name. Um, she had a tremendous celebrity image, a lot of endorsements. Uh, she traded heavily on her physical resemblance to Lindbergh. They called her, uh, or they called him Lucky Lindy, and they started referring to her as Lady Lindy. In addition to her exhausting lecture tour in 1928 and 1929, Putnam had undertaken to heavily promote her in a campaign that included publishing a book she authored, a series of new lecture tours, and using pictures of her in mass market endorsements for products including luggage, Lucky Strike cigarettes, women's clothing and sportswear. Uh, the marketing campaign by, by both Earhart and Putnam was successful in establishing the Earhart mystique in the public psyche. Rather than simply endorsing the products, Earhart actively became involved in the promotions, particularly in women's fashion. For a number of years, she had sewn her own clothes, but the active living lines that were sold in 50 stores, such as Macy's in metropolitan areas, were an expression of a new Earhart image. Her concept of a simple, natural lines matched with wrinkle-proof wrinkle washable materials was the embodiment of a sleek, purposeful, but feminine AE. And that was the familiar name she went by with family and friends. So if you really want to win points with your friends and family, have them call you by your initials. The luggage line she promoted was marketed as Modern Air Earhart Luggage, and that bore her unmistakable stamp of AE. Her aviation records were plentiful um, in her short career. She was the first, her first record came in 1922 when she became the first woman to fly solo above 14,000 feet. In 1932, Earhart became the first woman and second person after Charles Lindbergh to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She left Newfoundland, Canada on May 20th, 1932 in a red Lockheed Vega 5B. 
and arrived a day later, landing in a cow field near Londonbury, Northern Ireland. When she returned to the United States, she was awarded by Congress with a Distinguished Flying Cross, a military decoration awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in aerial flight. She was the first woman to receive the honor, and afterwards she published another book called The Fun of It in 1932, in which she wrote about her life and interest in flying. Later in 1932, she made uh, her first solo non-stop flight across the U.S. by a woman. She started in Los Angeles and landed 19 hours later in Newark, New Jersey. She also became the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to the United States mainland in 1935. In addition to her aviation achievements, uh, she was known for encouraging women to reject constrictive social norms and pursue advancement in engineering and aviation. In 1929, she helped found an organization of female pilots that later became known as the 99s. It still exists today, and it represents women pilots from 44 countries. Earhart served as its first president. In addition, she uh, debuted her own line of clothing in 1933, designed for the woman who lives actively. Later in 1935, she became the first person to fly solo from L.A. to Mexico City. The woman herself, I just find fascinating because it was like she had one foot set in traditional post-Victorian society and the other foot set in women's liberation entering a new age. Yeah, I don't know if she could have existed really at any other time period. Uh, just the norms were, were changing so much right then. Uh, and it's it still is amazing to me that she was so popular and still at the same time very iconoclastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it would be interesting to know how how unique she was, or was she really on the forefront of something a lot of other women were doing? She just had more notoriety. Who knows? But uh, what I thought was great was uh, right before she gets married, she hands her uh, fiance this great letter. Uh, <laughs> It's not exactly the kind of letter you'd want to be handed right before you get married. Knowing Connecticut, the square house on Church Street, uh, she writes to her husband to be dear, dear GPP. There's a good term of endearment, call him by his initials. There are some things which should be writ before we are married, things we have talked over before, most of them. You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter thereby chances and work which mean the most to me. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I could do. I know there may be compensations, but I have no heart to look ahead. On our life together, I want you to understand that I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties which arise may best be avoided should you or I become interested deeply or in passing in anyone else. Please let us not interfere with each other's work or play, nor let the world see our private joys or disagreements. In this connection, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be myself now and again, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. I must exact a cruel promise, and that is that you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. I will try to do my best in every way and give you that part of me you know and seem to want, A.E. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so they went ahead and got married. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow. So as we, as we get up to the really interesting part that makes her a legend, there was a 1937 uh, flight around the world. Um, the first attempt didn't go well. She was trying to go westbound. 
I think it was in Hawaii. She kind of crashed at the end of the runway, couldn't, couldn't take off so heavily laden. The aircraft kind of ground looped. And so she shipped it back to California to get work done. And on June 1st, 1937, she tried again. She took off from Oakland, California, this time going eastbound around the world. It was her second attempt to become the first pilot ever to circumnavigate the globe at the equator. She flew a twin-engine Lockheed 10E Electra and was accompanied on the flight by navigator Fred Noonan. They flew to Miami, then down to South America, across the Atlantic to Africa, then east to India and Southeast Asia. The pair reached Ley, New Guinea on June 29th. When they reached Ley, they had already flown 22,000 miles. They had 7,000 miles to go before reaching Oakland. On July 2nd, 1937, Earhart and Noonan departed Ley for tiny Howland Island, their next refueling stop. The flight was expected to be arduous because the tiny coral atoll was going to be difficult to locate. To help with navigation, there were two brightly lit U.S. ships that were stationed to mark the route. Earhart was also an intermittent radio contact with the Itasca, a U.S. Coast Guard cutter near Howland. Approaching Howland Island, there were a series of misunderstandings or error that remain controversial to this day. The final approach to Howland Island using radio navigation was not successful. The Itasca was transmitting. Um, I think Amelia Earhart was not hearing them, uh, but they could pick up what Amelia was transmitting, but they couldn't get a bearing on her. She was just transmitting on a frequency they could not use for directional uh, detection because she was transmitting at a higher frequency than the capabilities of the Itasca. Um, The Electra was equipped to transmit a lower frequency signal that the Itasca could have used for radio direction finding, but some of the equipment had been removed to save weight. Some authors have criticized Earhart's lack of expertise with her direction finding system, which had been fitted to the aircraft just prior to the flight. Motion picture evidence from the takeoff on lay also suggests that an antenna mounted underneath the fuselage may have been torn off from the fuel-heavy Electra during taxi and takeoff from Lay's turf runway, although no antenna was reported found on the airstrip at Lay, but uh, she couldn't uh, she couldn't hear the Itasca. During uh, Earhart and Noonan's approach to Howland Island, the Itasca received strong and clear radio transmissions from Earhart, identifying herself as KHAQQ, but she apparently could not hear voice transmissions from the ship. The first calls, routine reports stating the weather is cloudy and overcast, another bad sign, because uh, Howland Island would be tough to see uh, because it only had an elevation of like 20 feet from uh, sea level. And now they have to find it through clouds. They were received at 2.45 a.m. And just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd, uh, another call was received. The calls were broken up by static, but at this point, the aircraft would still be a long distance from Howland. At 6.14 a.m., another call was received stating the aircraft was within 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Earhart began whistling into the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to hone in on, but it was at this point that the radio operators on the Atasca realized that their RDF system could not tune into the aircraft's high frequency uh, for direction finding. Radio man Leo Ballarts later commented that he was sitting there sweating blood because I couldn't do a damn thing about it. A similar call asking for a bearing was received at 6.45 a.m., when Earhart estimated they were 100 miles out. At 7.30 to 7.40, 
the Itasca radio log notes a transmission indicating that the Electra was low on fuel and only had half an hour of flight time remaining. Earhart noted that she could not hear the Itasca's transmissions. At 7.42, uh, another Itasca radio log says, KHAQQ calling Itasca. We We must be on you but cannot see you. Gas is running low. We've been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. At 7.58, Amelia indicates she cannot hear the Itasca and asks them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. Uh, the transmission was reported by the Itasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequencies she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these but said she was unable to determine their direction. At 8.43 was Earhart's last known transmission. We are on line 157337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. However, a few moments later, she was back on the same frequency with a transmission that was logged as questionable. We are running on line north and south. Earhart's transmission seemed to indicate she and Noonan believed they had reached Howland's charted position, which was incorrect by about approximately five nautical miles. The Itasca used her oil-fired boilers to generate smoke for a period of time, but the flyers apparently didn't see it. The many scattered clouds in the area around Howland may have also been sighted as a problem. Their dark shadows on the ocean surface may have been almost indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat profile. The plane was believed to have gone down some hundred miles from the island, and an extensive search was undertaken to find Earhart and Noonan. However, on July 19, 1937, the operation was called off, and the pair was declared lost at sea. The disappearance captured many imaginations, and both scholars and aviation enthusiasts have proposed many theories about what happened to Amelia Earhart. And I kind of broke this up as to four major theories. One, uh, the crash and sink theory, which I guess geographically is probably the most likely. There's a lot of ocean out there. Uh, The official position from the U.S. government is that the Electra ran out of fuel, crashed in the open ocean somewhere in the vicinity of Howland Island. Uh, There's also the Japanese capture theory. One theory posits that Earhart and Noonan were captured and executed as spies for the Japanese. There's also an espionage theory, claims that the pair served as spies for the Roosevelt administration and assumed new identities upon returning to the United States. That doesn't seem very likely. No, it doesn't. Um, And also, the one I find most intriguing, but it's also mixed in with fundraising. (laughs) So it makes me kind of curious about it. But there's a Gardner Island hypothesis as advanced by the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGER. T-I-G-H-A-R. But their theory is, having failed to find Howland Island, Amelia and Fred Noonan continued on the navigational line Amelia said they were following. When they said they were on line 157337 and running on line north and south, the numbers 157 and 337 refer to compass headings, 157 degrees and 337 degrees and describe a line of position that passes through her intended destination, Howland. Running north and then south along that line in an attempt to find Howland makes sense. According to Tiger, 
Gardner Island, uh, I guess then known as Gardner, now known as Nikumuru, was 356 nautical miles from Howland, well within the Electra's calculated range. And that line would have led them to uninhabited Gardner Island, where Amelia landed the Electra safely on the island's reef, which dries at low tide and is flat and smooth enough to land an airplane. Uh, something else we can talk about, but for the uh, next several days, the theory goes that they that Amelia used the aircraft's radio to send out distress calls. Uh, the post-loss radio signals are a crucial but often neglected piece of the airport uh, Earhart puzzle. Government, commercial, and private radio operators around the Pacific and in the U.S. reported hearing distress calls in the days after the plane was lost. Some were transparent hoaxes. Uh, but 57 were consistent in content and would correspond to low tides on Nikamoru when they could run the right engine to generate power. Uh, calls all reference Uncharted Island, identification as Amelia Earhart, her radio call sign is KHAQQ, references to Noonan having a head injury, references to rising water, a deteriorating situation, um, and one thing I found really fascinating is one radio call intercepted by a young girl in Florida, of all places, references repeat, has repeated references to New York City or something that sounds like New York City. And it just so happens that in 1929, there was a ship called the SS Norwich City, which ran aground and was abandoned on Nikamuru. So if you were looking, if you didn't know what island you were on, but were looking for something that would mark it, and you're staring at the SS Norwich City, that would be an interesting geographical marker. Um, also, radio bearings taken on the signals crossed in the vicinity of Gardner Island. Uh, six bearings were taken by Pan American Airways radio direction finding stations in Oahu, Midway, and Wake Island. Uh, the four strongest crossed near Gardner Island. A seventh bearing taken by the Coast Guard also passes near Gardner. One week after the flight disappeared, three U.S. Navy search planes flew over Gardner Island. By then, the distress calls had stopped. Tiger's theory is by then, rising tides and surf had swept the Electra over the reef edge. The Navy flyers saw no airplane, but they did see signs of recent habitation. They thought that all the islands in the area were inhabited, so they moved on. But in fact, no one had lived on Gardner since 1892. So according to Tiger, the available evidence points to landing on the reef on the west side of the island. Yeah, a photo of the area on Nikamuro taken by a British expedition three months later shows an unidentified object on the reef edge. Tiger's theory is that that was a landing strut that was sticking up out of the water because hmm. a plane was flipped over. The search planes that went out, I would think they would have seen something like an oil slick on the water if, if the plane had gone down there and, you know, kind of crashed on the reef and then got swept into the ocean. And normally, it should be a bunch of floating debris, I would think. Yeah. I mean, not everything's going to sink with the plane. The plane's going to break up on impact, I would think. So that's another interesting thing. Um, 18 months after Earhart disappeared on the island, the island was settled by a few dozen Pacific Islanders under British colonial administration. The colony was eventually shut down in 1963 due to a severe drought. But... um they have found during the archaeological dig uh, pieces of an aircraft, aluminum and things like that, consistent with, uh, with a Lockheed Electra. And in 1940, three years after Earhart disappeared, a British colonial service officer found the partial skeleton of a castaway on a remote part of the island. 
There was a campfire, animal bones, a box that had once contained a sextant, remains of a man's shoe and a woman's shoe made him think he may have found Amelia Earhart, but based on measurements, a doctor in the Pacific judged the skeleton to be male and American authorities were never notified. Other little tidbits they found on the island, uh, a bottle of freckle lotion dating from the 1930s, and apparently uh, Amelia was known to not only have freckles, but also not like them, although I don't know why she'd be traveling with freckle cream. Um, photo ops. Photo ops, yeah. The serial number reported to have been on the sextant box found in 1940 are consistent with the make and model, at least, of the sextant used by Fred, Fred Noonan. So, interesting theories. Yeah, um, so much went wrong, especially on that last leg of the trip. It's amazing that they, they pushed themselves. And I was also reading somewhere that uh, they might have been able to get a, a Morse code signal through to the Itasca, but uh, neither Amelia Earhart nor Fred uh, Noonan um, knew Morse code. Right. I mean, the, the sensing I got was just that... Um, there was a few pilots of that era that basically said, knowing how broad the expanse of the Pacific is, it's a lot easier to never be heard from again than it is to actually find your way through the islands to refuel and things like that. But they basically said your navigation has to be spot on or your toast. Here they had no redundancy. They had left some safety equipment behind. The weather reports were wrong. Yeah, I also saw probably didn't take into account crossing the international date, date line, which throws them off by a degree, which equals right. about 60 miles off course. And it's not like, you know, having GPS the, the way it is now. It's uh, if you're following just a compass direction, if you start drifting a little bit, you could think you're heading the right direction by compass, but you've actually drifted pretty far away. And the further you go, the further you're off target. I just find Amelia to be, a, I mean, not only have created an amazing um, mystery that people are interested in, but she was also an amazing character in terms of uh, being at the forefront of uh, women's advancement into the sciences and into aviation. And a couple of last thoughts uh, I had uh, that I found interesting. If you're really looking for what her last message might have been, and how would she want to be remembered? Um, it, it seems pretty clear that she knew that on some flight, her luck may run out and she may not come back. So uh, in her vernacular, you know, rather than say she might die, she would laugh it off and say she may pop off. And so what she did was she would leave popping off letters before like her transatlantic flight. She's left some of those letters and some conversations she had with quotes. And so I kind of wove them together. Mm -hmm. um, and if you connect them together, I think you have what I like to think would be her last note to us. But she says, hooray for the last great adventure. I wish I had won, but it was worthwhile anyways. I have no faith that we'll meet again anywhere, but I wish we might. I have tried to play for a large stake. And if I succeed, all will be well. If not, I shall be happy to pop off in such an adventure. The fear I have, perhaps one traditionally feminine, is the fear of growing old. So if I do not return, I won't feel entirely cheated. Please know that I am aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men has tried. When they fail, their failure must just be a challenge to others. And I find that kind of cool. Yeah, yes. Uh, certainly uh, larger than, than life, and, and rightly so. Yeah. 
Now, it's also a mystery that, that just doesn't seem to, to ever die. Um, about two years ago, the History Channel uh, ran a program that uh, was based on a photo that was found in the National Archives, the United States National Archives, that they say strongly looks like Amelia Earhart and, and Fred Noonan on a dock in the Marshall Islands. Like maybe post crash, maybe they they crash landed in the Marshall Islands, and it did cause quite a bit of stir on the internet for a while. But it turned out that the picture was actually from a Japanese travel book and was taken in in uh, 1935, so it would have been a couple of years too too early. And certainly gearing up to World War One or World War Two, if the Japanese had captured them, um, Japanese held territory, they probably wouldn't have been in a very good mood. No, I don't think so. So. Who knows? But I think that's a fascinating story. It is, and it's a mystery that uh, most likely will never be solved. What do you think happened? I think they probably had um, the, the, the crash and sink scenario. They didn't have enough fuel. They uh, they were way off on their navigation and then didn't know exactly where they were, and they just, just probably went down over the ocean somewhere. I think if I had to bet it all, I would probably go in that direction, just knowing that's probably the safest bet, the more the most likely bet. But uh, the older I get and the more I read the Tiger analysis, kind of interested in the Tiger analysis as an alternate theory of what might have happened. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Freckle cream, man. Freckle cream, yes. So it must have been her. Yep. I'm not sure her sense of humor would have been quite as good. I mean, from the popping off letters to actually sitting in 90 degree heat with these giant coconut crabs coming at you. It's like, damn, why, why couldn't I take up like stamp collecting or something? What's this flying crap? Oh, and apparently from that note, uh, she was an atheist. That's what it sounded like. I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I doubt we'll, we'll meet again. I don't think so. Yeah. 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 I thought that was interesting when I read that. It's kind of a giveaway. And obviously she lasted more than a year with GPP. So he must have, um, he must have left the door open. So I like this story. I think this is a very interesting it, story. It is, is a classic, uh, absolutely classic story. Uh, because there's, it's not only interesting, but there are nuggets, nuggets to learn by, I think, in, in there, how people led their lives. Yeah, I think anyone who's familiar with her story is automatically invested in this mystery, like wants to know what happened to her. And, and the other interesting thing, too, is the more you read about what she stood for, um, how she checked out really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If anything, it could like overshadow the whole point to her having been here. Right. You know, um, so her, I mean, her life is actually more interested, interesting than how she checked out because she probably checked out <laughs> unless she's living in New Jersey and just not telling anyone. And, and, and based on her, her philosophy, was this inevitable? Was she just going to keep pushing the limits till she couldn't push them any further? We should have a seance and see if we can call her and say, do you have free will? And then I'll look <laughs> at you and I'll say, see, see, she says she has free will. I don't think so. She, she can't talk to us because she has no free will. She'll say, Ray, get out of the box, Ray. <laughs> get out of the box. <laughs> but the box is so comfortable. <laughs> well, we, we hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, this is normally the part where there'd be some sort of witty tagline and some outtakes. But uh, instead of that, this time, we're going to talk about a very unusual event that happened in the process of making this podcast. Can we still do the outtake? Okay, we'll do the outtake. <laughs> Good. That's my favorite part. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll put an outtake after this. But anyway, okay. 
we, we thought it best to just put this at the end because it gives you a little bit of background into what happened. It's so freaky. It, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we do deal with a lot of paranormal, mysterious things, and we actually have a mystery within a mystery this time. So, so Mark, I'll, I'll let you pick it up there. Okay. Well, every time we do a podcast, it's really a window of time. About 24 hours before we go live, as it were, um, we do a production meeting, kind of go over our notes. Um, so that way we have a conversation that kind of syncs up. Ray knows where I'm going. I know where he's going. And when we ad lib, we kind of know what's coming next. So anyways, so in that 24 hour production window, um, I normally get a lot of marketing phone calls from all over the place, but it's always New Jersey, Colorado, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, in this 24-hour window where we're talking about Amelia Earhart and we're talking about the possibility that she ended up on Nikamuru Island, which is in the Phoenix Island, um, Felix, uh, Felix Islands, oh <laughs> the Phoenix Islands, um, which is owned, you know, uh, the country is Kiribati. Um, so anyways, as we're talking about all that, don't I get a, what I presume is a marketing phone call, but it's from Kiribati. Creepy. <laughs> it is. And it's a, a place I never even looked at on a map before, never really thought about it. I, I knew Amelia Earhart had vanished somewhere over the South Pacific, but I didn't know that the name of the islands involved. It, it is quite literally where she disappeared uh, was in what is now Kiribati. So it's either, you know, a marketing phone call, um, some scammer out in Kiribati is trying to make money, or um, it might be Amelia's ghost trying to contact us to let us know where she is. I mean, what's more likely? I don't know. 50-50? What do you think? What do you think, Ray? You know, I would say with, with almost metaphysical certainty that it was a, a scam call. I think you're right. Um, but still. <laughs> but but still, even if it was, I would say that there's there's something in the universe that caused it to happen right at that precise time and created that synchronicity. Because I have never gotten a phone call from outside the United States. We had our episode where we played with uh, emails coming from outside the United States. Uh, Maybe I've it's never the gotten... same guy. <laughs> yeah, man, that's right. Now he's, now he's playing a game on me. Um but no, that was pretty. That was pretty interesting. Pretty cool. Now we tried calling back, but it, all it said was, you know, you don't have enough money on your account to call. But um, I mean, these are the games Amelia plays. You know, it, and it'd be just like her to do something like that. It would. She's such a minx. <laughs> God, <laughs> is it creepy? Oh, it's, it's the stuff that keeps you up at night. No, I, I went went inside, told Michelle about it. I literally got a chill down my back talking about it. That was before we. I think before we had tried calling it back and it just it was just so weird that 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 would happen like that so we thought our audience would appreciate that yeah and i guess what happens is you know the the way the uh, the scam works is they ring you once and uh for some reason a lot some people feel a compulsion to call back every single call you get even the wrong numbers to say who's calling me they they ring once you call back and you're hooked into something that i guess is akin to like the old 900 numbers and it's costing you you know, fifty dollars a minute to, to to sit on hold, and the the scammers are, are raking in most of that money, or or this is what Amelia is doing to finance her retirement. <laughs> this is incredible! Oh my gosh! So we have I Amelia's voice. In the storm, which 
wide, one of the most severe I have ever been in. Monsieur Hart, would you mind indicating on this blackboard exactly the trials and difficulties that you encountered in coming across? Well, I'll try to give you some of the highlights of the trip, if you wish. I took off the famous Harbor Grace runway at dusk, about 7.30, I believe. I flew for a couple of hours while sunset uh, lasted, and then two more hours as the moon came up over a bank of clouds. I found specific thunderstorms probably three or four hundred miles off the coast of Ireland. I believe I saw land first about the middle. I decided to come down anyway in the best available pasture. I got down without any trouble and taxied to the front door of a surprised farmer's cottage. After receiving a real Irish welcome, I took a paramount plane to London and there received a real English welcome. So, that's Amelia. That's Amelia talking to us. What's the Irish welcome? Get off my property, you! Get off! I'll, I'll shoot you! Get off my land! <laughs> You're scaring me, cows! You're stealing my potatoes, are you? <laughs> you know, so I always have to be lucky charms. <laughs> <laughs> They're magically uh. delicious. You've been listening to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast, coming soon to iTunes and other podcast platforms. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Now we have to redo the whole podcast, because I don't know how to edit that together. <laughs> That's, right. That's right, so we can fit it together. <laughs>